main topics of tonight. Welcome everyone. It's great to have you guys here. Uh, me and Mr. Sani, um, economist, certified financial planner. That's of course Mr. Sani, not me. La. <laughs> the last time we did a Twitter space was, guess when was it, Mr. Sani? Wow. Uh, with you, I think it was a month and a half ago. Is really? it? Sorry, I can't. Yeah. Time, time flies. Can't remember. Yeah, time flies. <laughs> getting old. <laughs> and uh, so many things has changed around in the market, but I guess our sentiment hasn't changed, right? We've been talking about, you know, uh, markets going lower uh, as the economy enters into recession, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we, we, we've been saying that we're not out of the woods yet, that probably this rally that we have, that we previously seen is most likely just a relief rally or some sort. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, inflation, let's talk about it. CPI data came out at 8.3%. 8.30 p.m. Malaysian time today. Guess mm-hmm. what? I was looking at the clock, you know. I set an alarm for it in 8.30 p.m. And without even looking on Twitter, I immediately know that CPI data disappointed uh, the investors. Because <laughs> I see Bitcoin's price, right? Immediately tanked by, what, 4 5% in the span of one or two minutes, you know. So let, let's, let, let's talk about it, like, okay? Mm-hmm. Analysts were predicting 8.1%. Okay, and it came out at 8.3%. But one could look at it another way and say that, you know, actually it, it has fallen compared to uh, the previous month of July. Because July came out at 8.5%, mm-hmm. then right now it comes out at 8.3%. So why is the market dumping, you know? Yeah, yeah, okay. So I've, I've kind of mentioned this the last time also because the market is always looking at current expectation not so much of previous uh, previous numbers, uh, past, past month numbers. So even the past month numbers is higher than this month's number, um, therefore suggesting that CPI may be slowing on a year-on-year basis. Um, but what's really important is what was the market expectation? As you correctly mentioned, 8.1. So 8.3 is definitely higher than what market expect. And so therefore, automatically, it's, it's, it's a, a slightly above, not exceptionally above, but slightly above uh, what market is expecting. So there was a bit of a surprise there. I think market reacted accordingly. Okay, so with this, right, um, there's also another way to look at the CPI. It's what we call the core CPI. Now, this one, I think I'll leave it for you to explain, Mr. Sunny. The core gauge actually climbed to 6.3% from 5.9% in July. So maybe was this the reason that uh, the market tanked because, you know, I, I think investors, they're looking at a few perspectives over here that said, oh, yes, inflation might have cooled off compared to July, but actually the core inflation has risen by 0.4%. So do you mind explaining what does, what's the difference between CPI and core CPI over here? So core, okay, so core basically, see, CPI can be quite volatile because it includes things like energy prices. Um, so and things that are that are volatile. So when you talk about core, you're really talking about um a figure which removes um those things that are quite volatile, uh, including energy. So so these are say like food and energy. Basically, are quite quite um volatile in the CPI. So when you remove this, um, what you have is you have a a basket of CPI goods which you are measuring, which um exclude volatile stuff more they're by right they should be less volatile they should be more stable um, and when you actually um, um, see core cpi increasing um, as the word implies um, you are suspecting that it's 
price increase has now permeated, has now gone into even stuff which traditionally are not volatile. So I think I, I, I heard someone commenting after the release that healthcare, when they dug into the figures, healthcare is up. Um, 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 healthcare in terms of um, price, price is up. So that may actually suggest that the high energy prices, the high wage, wages and such, um, um, all these are now making its way into other parts of the economy, i.e. the core of the economy where prices traditionally would be more stable. So I think that is maybe one reason why the movement you see in markets slightly more than what the numbers suggest because 8.1, 8.3, yeah, a bit of a surprise, not that great. But when you dig into it, uh, it may suggest that inflation is becoming more entrenched uh, in the market or, or in the economy. Yeah, because because just now you you were talking about core CPI being the relatively uh, more stable assets compared to uh, food and energy prices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, when when you, when you talk about the, those stable assets rising in price, right, I just did a quick Google search. You actually write you know housing costs, uh, they continue to rise. Uh, this is from the report by Wall Street Journal. Labor department's index for housing costs continue to rise, increasing zero point seven percent in August over the prior month. A zero point seven percent increase in housing prices is crazy, no? I think that's 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 pretty ridiculous, Mister Sunny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 with that, uh, maybe that's the reason why we are seeing such the, uh, such volatility in the market right now, like, Because on one hand, yes, this, uh, the the uh, CPI has fallen by zero point two percent compared to the prior month. But if we like what you said, like, if we dig deeper, actually the problem has just went deeper. You know, has has just went deeper into the uh, the core itself, la. and when we are looking at this, right, are, are we surprised, Mister Sunny? The, the the thing is, uh, have we been seeing this coming, or 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 is the market now looking at, hey, actually the Federal Reserve, whatever they are doing, is not enough to uh, clip inflation on its wings and bring it down? Since right now the core CPI has risen by so so much, I think when when CPI is a result of energy prices okay um and because energy is what we consider to be the apex commodities like you know i keep on saying um the apex predator is things like the shark from you know no one no one no one you know it's the highest in the in the in the food chain so similarly for oil and energy it's it's really at that apex part, uh, 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 part of the economy where what when it increases it just permeates and goes down and everything else will increase because why everything from producing goods and services to transporting goods and services to going to work itself all needs energy so when you have energy increasing um, sooner or later uh, what will happen is you'll see the price of everything else increasing at the same time or at least increasing as a result um, so no surprise there. Um, and then we have other secondary effects because with this increase in energy price and because it has come at such an accelerated pace, worldwide we have now people, workers asking for higher wages. And when that happens, it feeds back into, uh, I'm a manufacturer, um, uh, the, the, the labour market is tight um, my workers are now demanding higher wages because of higher cost of living. I have no choice. Either I do this or I lose them. Fine, I'm going to pay. 
Um, but what do I do? Then I push the prices over to the consumer. So, so now it becomes a cost push inflation on top of a demand pull inflation, which is due to the reopening and such. So all in all, all these things start to come together. And this is what you get a very sticky inflation number, which is going to be quite difficult to come off. And, and this is just what we call the, um, the short term view on inflation. The long term view now also is increasingly, it's going to be sticky because of a few reasons. Number one, oil prices are not expected to come off a lot because structurally um, uh, uh, not a lot has been done to, to, to uh, invest in capital expenditure in, the, in, in, in all the OPEC countries. So uh, they may not be able to produce a lot. Number two, we don't think that despite the fact this Russia, Ukraine, even if they taper off in terms of their conflict, um, Russia is not going to, to open its oil to its enemies, so to say very soon you know number three we talk about globalization which existed and helped prices to remain down or low for the past 10 years since 20 years since china joined the wto in in 2000 uh and guess what again uh we don't think that's going to be uh, that has structurally changed china is no longer going to, going to you know with sanctions by the u.s in terms of chips and technology and i think it's going to be a less friendly environment, uh, so so to say. So everything does suggest that um, the what we've enjoyed for the past twenty years, low inflation and such, um, that was kind of that's gone already. So we, we may the best case is we go back to the four, five, maybe even six percent inflation. Uh, worst case is it could be higher than that. Wow, actually, what 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 you are trying to to say is that we can no longer, it's difficult for us to, to go back to uh, the Fed's targets of 2 to maybe 3% inflation. So if they are unable to go back to their target, because previously we've discussed this many times before, uh, I, I can even memorize the words already, the Federal Reserve will not back down until inflation reaches to their target goal of uh, 2%. Right? But what if no matter what they do, they try to crank up rates and it just stays there? You know, like, like right now what we are seeing, right? Because it, it come down a bit, but it's still kind of not hitting their analyst expectations. So what would the Fed be able to do then if they cannot hike rates anymore, but inflation still remains well above their target of like what you said just now, 4, 5, 6%. Okay. So just to, just to uh, uh, clarify, the 4, 5, 6% is a long-term, which I think structurally uh, long-term, will, we will go back to those those levels lah, instead of the two even one two or even zero to two percent inflation rates that we've had over the past 20 years due to due to all these things i mentioned okay but having said that also short term i still think rates uh inflation can come off but it will stay roughly in the u.s maybe three three or four percent and the reason is um, um the fed uh, atlanta fed had actually come up with a research paper I think you may have the, the paper also, uh, where they actually decompose uh, the PCE inflation number. Um, and they actually, uh, in their research, they came to the conclusion or the result was out of the so-called total inflation number that we're seeing currently about 65 to 7%, one third of it is supply-driven, one third of it is demand-driven, and another one third is quite ambiguous, can't really tell whether it's supply or demand-driven. Okay. Um, the Fed can 
of course kill off the demand-driven inflation by hiking rates and such. So that means you you basically take you wipe out two percent from the CPI uh, PCE number, uh, and let's say out of the uh, other two odd percent, half of it from the ambiguous side can be settled. That leaves you with so-called the supply side, which is about two percent, and the ambiguous side, which is one percent, about three percent. So three to four percent, the Fed has no control over because it is supply-driven and 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 nothing to do with them, so to say. So so I think that's where the tricky part is. I think uh they can bring rates down to four if they kill off totally um, demand side or even three maybe, um but two is is kind of a hard sell lah. Um, so if 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 it's down to three and four, um, what they need to do is they need to push, um, um, uh, rates, Fed fund rates, ten year rates, uh, and keep it above four, in order to generate what we call a real, real, real interest rates, because then you have nominal rates above above inflation. You have, you generate real interest. So, so that would be the best case, where the Fed gains regains back credibility. Uh, because it actually um, generates uh, uh, real real returns or real interest rates, uh, rather than at present it is um, actually at a negative, uh, in some in, in many instances negative. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, I I I do just want to just track track back a bit lah, yes, and, yeah. and talk a bit about history itself because uh, yeah. uh, we've been through a lot, in particular the United States. The, the current inflation rate, the highest that we've seen recently is 9.1%. That's what we have experienced. But I think, Mr. Sunny, you've also seen in the 1980s, inflation reached a staggering 15%. And during that period of time, uh, then Fed Chairman Paul Volcker hiked rates by a substantial amount. This guy went full-on crazy, hiked rates up to 20%. And what's the difference right now? Can the Federal Reserve just go like full Paul Volcker and go like, I don't care what the market is going to do. I'm just going to crank up rates up to maybe 10, 12% in order to bring inflation back down to my target goal. Because just now you were talking about, we were talking about uh, what the Fed being pinned on the corner and they're not being able to do anything uh, because 4% of the uh, inflation, they're not really controlling it. But what if they do this? What if they just go crazy and they hike rates up to maybe 10, 12%? And what will happen to the market then? Well, of course, under current circumstances, they won't need to unless inflation remains stubbornly high at 8 and even crosses double digit. Um, then, um, theoretically, they ought to, right? But the major difference between 1970 and now is that in 1970, the US didn't have such a big debt issue. Currently, the, the, the amount of debt that the US has Whenever you raise interest rate, and I can't recall the number itself, you add to the interest burden on that debt that you have issued um, uh, in an increasing manner. Of course, when you have higher rates, you pay more interest. Um, and there are already people saying it's almost impossible for the Fed to, to, to mimic a Paul Walker's or for uh, Jerome Powell to mimic a Paul Walker's type of aggressive rate hikes because it's totally two different environment. One is you're doing it where you have no repercussion on your debt and now is you will have tremendous repercussion on your debt. Okay, so here comes the, the next question. Then, What is then the maximum interest rate that we can see in this current environment? Because you know, previous, previously, we've also talked about uh, 
how the uh, Federal Reserve is expecting, and also market is pricing in right now, right? Um, rate hikes of up to, uh, in to- totaling up to 4%. Uh, by, by the end of the year, it means that the, to- the total interest rates add up to be about 4%. Market is pricing in that right now. But can it actually go higher? And what is the ceiling, uh, the interest rate ceiling that we will see? Then only the Fed starts to say that, hey, we are going to uh, pivot right now because there's no way we can continuously hike rates. Otherwise, we will burden ourselves with more interest rate uh, debt, lah, basically. Well, it, it, it all depends on inflation. So if they can get inflation down to, to 3 4%, then, then by hiking to 4 which is currently what they are saying, uh, uh, because currently the Fed's thinking is, um, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but the, <laughs> the Fed thinks that it can bring inflation back down to 2 Okay, And then we have Federal Reserve Committee members saying that in 2023, infl- uh, uh, Fed fund rates will be roughly about 4 So just a rough behind-the-envelope kind of calculation tells you the Fed is think- Fed thinks that it can create a, a 200 basis point real interest rate, uh, uh, a positive positive real interest rate. There, okay? So maybe it's wrong. Maybe, maybe inflation s- stays stuck at 4 Okay. Um, it probably still needs to just keep short-term rates or Fed fund rates at 5 and you still have a positive, or you can even just match it, you still have a positive. So if inflation does come off, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. I think the major problem now is basically if inflation is sticky and for some reason continues to go higher, uh, that will be a major headache because then the past question comes up, how do they raise it because of, of higher debt levels and stuff. Okay, So if you reach that point, then I think that's going to be kind of like a worst-case scenario. The other case that we are potentially going to be facing, to be faced with is, as inflation comes off, let's say, come and even from 8% currently to about 4 even 5%, okay? And still relatively high uh, uh, compared to one a decade ago and so for the past 10 years. Okay. Then the Fed has to balance between um, um, where to keep rates because potentially at the same time the economy will be slowing quite drastically. We must not forget uh, that uh, the past six months we have seen extremely aggressive rate hikes from central banks around the world including the Federal Reserve. We have seen massive hit to consumer disposable income because of higher energy and many, 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 many other things which everything will accumulate and come to the forefront basically by early 2023 because again interest rate hikes works in lags um, and and by the time it surfaces and hits the economy will be early early next year um, disposable income is being being actually demolished at an accelerated pace because people in germany for example used to pay energy bills at 200 euros a month now it's paying 1000 euros a month Okay. So what they're doing is that they're, they're, they're scraping the, bar- the, the bottom of the savings barrel uh, using whatever uh, uh, excess cash they have, which used to be used for discretionary spending. Now they use it for paying up energy, uh, energy prices. Uh, sooner or later, if this, if, after a while, they're going to run out of cash and they're going to use credit cards and stuff. And in the US, credit card numbers have really, balances have really gone, I think, higher than, than if I'm not wrong, approaching or higher than that of uh, uh, pre-COVID or actually COVID, I can't remember. Yeah, but it's going up quite high. All in all, what it tells us is basically, um, uh, by early next year, 
people would have kind of run out of money. Uh, balance sheets would have to be 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 under pressure, um, and not only people but also companies and so on. So so that's really the point where the economy starts to head southwards. Okay, head south. Then the Fed basically has an has has a decision or balancing act. Um, can I should I reduce? Okay, since CPI has come off, should I start to reduce rates? Um, to support the economy now that CPI looks to have come off from eight to five, okay, um, should I reduce rates in support of the economy? Okay. This is interesting, because in Fed communication to the market, especially from Fed officials, post uh, Jackson Hole, um, there have been a few mention about how they don't want to repeat the mistake of the nineteen seventies, and the mistake in the nineteen seventies was. Um, the, the so-called stop-go monetary policy. So the mistake basically was, during that time, when the Federal Reserve back then saw that inflation was tapering off, they quickly reduced interest rates in hope that they will be able to support the economy given that interest rate, uh, uh, given that inflation was reducing, sorry. In, when inflation was reducing, they quickly reduced interest rates. Uh, lo and behold, inflation spiked because of that. So, i.e., in, in, in other words, because they took their foot off the pedal, they did not kill inflation totally. Instead, they, they, they backed off at the first chance that they had because of the economy. Inflation reared its ugly head again. And they had this battle on and off battle in the 1970s where they, inflation went up, they increased. Inflation looked as though it was tapering, they reduced because they want to support the economy. Then inflation reappeared, they hiked again. So they had this on-off kind of monetary policy which caused the economy to swing into recession, out of recession, into recession. So this is something which I think the Fed has learned its lesson looking back into history. And therefore, the communication from the Fed today suggests very strongly they are going to raise rates currently based on current expectation 4%. Okay, maybe slightly more than that by the end of this year, early next year. And they will keep it there for the whole of next year, throughout 2023. Because if you remember what the market was expecting, the market was expecting, number one, the rates to peak out at 3.5 to 3.75, then rates to start move, then go sideways, and then start to move down by the middle of next year. That was the market expectation. Now the market is actually moving to the Fed's uh, a narrative, which is peak out probably at four, maybe even slightly higher, but then stay stagnant or plateau side uh, or, or flatline throughout twenty twenty three. So big question now also is, yeah, how 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 will the economy take that? Because the economy will be operating at uh at that time you would expect uh Fed fund rates to be at four 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 point two five okay. How will the economy operate at 4.254% when for the past 10 years it's been operating at less than 1%? So, all in all, the, the big question now is, is it then true that the Fed would have to let go of the, the economy and at the same time the stock market? And this will be the collateral damage for fighting and killing off inflation. And the answer is yes. 
Yeah, because when you mentioned about the uh, Fed not going to uh, just letting go of the stock market and the economy, right? Previously, they've also mentioned, right? I think it was in Jackson Hole, uh, Jerome Powell acknowledges the damages done to households and uh, citizens and what and whatnot, but he believes that the the problem of price stability is much more greater. Therefore, they are siding towards uh, a more aggressive stance, or perhaps again like what you covered just now to maintain their four uh, percent hike throughout the throughout the entire year of uh, twenty twenty three lah, where markets are previously expecting the Fed to possibly turn around or pivot, uh, by mid-year, by mid, by June or July next year. So what you covered just now, a lot of points over there, Mr. Sunny, and, and, and great, great things. Uh, let me just unpack a bit. First of all, <laughs> inflation is just like whack-a-mole, lah, you know? in, in, in simple sense, if you try and uh, think that nothing's going to pop up too early, you try and reduce rates too early, then inflation comes back and bites you again. Just a bit of context for you guys in the audience. Uh, less than half a year ago, probably about six or seven months ago lah, Rates were near zero levels, you know. The Fed front rates, they were at zero. Right, Mr. Sunny, if I'm not mistaken? It's at zero percent, right? Or near at yeah, least yeah, yeah, zero two five around there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was near zero levels. Yep. And within the span of uh, what six, seven months, they raised interest rates by two hundred and twenty-five basis points, you know, in four meetings. So March meeting, they raised zero point two five percent, they start to test the waters a bit. Then after that, the uh, uh, April or May meeting, they raised another 0.5%. Then, uh-oh, inflation come out higher. Then let's raise higher, 0.75 in the July meeting, then 0.75 in the August meeting or something like that, somewhere, somewhere along those lines. And it totally, it totally adds up to be about 2.25% right now. And just now you mentioned that by the end of the year, we are expecting 4%. So in a, essentially, that will mean the next few meetings, which we will have, I think, three more, which is September, then November and December. So September meeting, 0.75%. Then the November meeting, another 0.75%. But the December meeting, we, because 2.25, you plus 1.5, that's 3.75, right? Mm, so December meeting, they are going to, 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 to lower the rate hikes. They are going to like come, come down. So, so the markets are pricing in seven, the next three meetings. Um, twenty first November, uh, sorry, twenty first September, second November, and fourteen December. The market now is pricing in seven five seven five two five. Seven five seven five two five. Wow, but so that brings it to hundred and seventy five basis point. Hundred and seventy five basis point plus where we are today at two two five. That brings us to four percent. Yeah. Okay, because that that doesn't really make a lot of uh, a sense to me now. Uh, the the last December one, um, it's a bit far. Market is now giving it about a forty five percent probability of a twenty five basis point hike, a thirty percent probability of uh of a fifty basis point hike. So like like what you mentioned last week, only the numbers were really different for this upcoming meeting. It changed all. It, all it took was one data to change it. So I think uh we can't even rule out. That in the last December meeting we could potentially, if inflation remains sticky, uh, fifty basis point. Who knows? Maybe seventy five again. <laughs> maybe, maybe even even. Okay, let's let's not go too far yet, because because. <laughs> so, so the next two meetings, the market seems to be quite um um I won't say sure, but of course this next meeting the market is pretty sure because the market is putting in a eighty percent chance of a seventy five basis point hike. It is putting in a twenty percent chance 
of a hundred basis point high, and it's putting a zero percent chance of a fifty basis point. High. So they just totally wiped out the the fifty basis point high already. Let's not even talk about it. It's a question of either seventy five or hundred. And that's, the odds are eighty twenty. Yeah, that that's just crazy lah. Because, uh, just about twelve hours ago, the probability was entirely flipped. There was no such thing as hundred basis point height. In fact, there was a twelve percent probability of a, a fifty basis point height. So, <laughs> the Fed is 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 really in a in 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 a tight spot right now. But but I, I think the Fed the Fed to you know what the Fed is trying to do or not? The Fed has lost so much credibility. By missing out on this transitory inflation, transitory inflation, transitory inflation, and such, um, that is now trying to gain, regain back its credibility. The only way it can regain back its credibility is to be excessively aggressive. And it clearly sent out that message from uh, in Jackson Hole, and you correctly mentioned it is telling it's it cannot tell the market straight in the face. Households and businesses. Businesses are going to be whacked. The nicest way to put it is households and businesses may suffer some <laughs> consequences. <laughs> but but you know, in order for households and businesses not to be whacked, it it entails the Federal Reserve soft landing the situation, which is like they've never the track record is just terribly difficult to to do that, you know. Yeah, yeah. It it is, uh, to put it quite simply, lah. It's a depressing time that we are living in right now. <laughs> but so the odds, so the odds are they're gonna. I won't say crash the market. The odds are they we're gonna have a harder landing than what even the Federal Reserve. They've in the thirteen time that thirteen times that they have hiked rates over the past. I can't remember how many years. Ah, uh, um, they've owned out of the thirteen times, ten times. After hiking aggressively, markets or rather the economy went into a recession. Only three times the markets, oh sorry, the economy didn't go into a recession. So the odds are in favor of the Fed um, um, breaking something, i.e., causing the economy to actually fall into a recession. And and when you look at the grand scale of things, not only the U.S. You now ask U.S. trading partners, China, U.S. trading partners, Europe. U.S. trading partners, rest of the world. If the U.S. is not is going southwards, maybe these other guys can save it. But when you look at these guys, these guys are also all going down. So at the end of the day, it's like almost again nothing is hundred percent, but almost a certainty that we are actually headed towards one direction. It's a question of how bad it will be. It's uh like what you always mention, like the everything bubble, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what what a time we are living in! All right, I guess we've kind of talked a lot about the Federal Reserve hiking rates and inflation, blah blah blah. Let me just move on and talk about Europe because this one is another interesting topic to discuss. Uh, in particular, a few days ago, I think on September the eighth, uh, I posted it. Also, you can take a look at this uh, pin tweet within our space over here. Just scroll right, Vladimir Putin. Plans to to let Europe freeze. I'm just going to quote quote him. Ah,、uh. during a conference on Wednesday last week, he said, "We will not supply gas, oil, coal, heating oil. We will not supply anything. We're going to let them freeze. Freeze is is a famous line from this、uh, 
Russian fairy tale. La. So, <laughs> you know, you, you people are saying right now, winter is coming, blah, blah, blah. Now, my question is, so you have one side, the Federal Reserve trying to resolve inflation, right? But, and, and, and we mentioned just now, oil is coming off, it's going lower. But with Russia continuously being like this, and Vladimir Putin being honestly just, let's be blunt, being a thug, okay? <laughs> trying to uh, uh, make, make like this gas uh, trading into like a cartel or something like that. Then, well, we see oil prices spike back up again. That's, that's a very simple, simple question. Because if you see oil prices spike back up again, then the Federal, whatever the Federal Reserve has preached so far failed to work. And they, they might have to resort to even more aggressive monetary measures. The fact of the matter is, first of all, he's, he, I don't think he has ever uh, thought about... Uh, providing gas to Europe and such during winter. <laughs> I think the idea was from the very beginning to cut it off. La. Yeah, so he was just trying to be diplomatic at the very beginning by uh, saying that it was maintenance and such. But at the end of the day, I think credit to him, he was very truthful to say that, you know, we just want to, we just want to screw you <laughs> and try switch off everything. Okay. Um, but just touching on that before I move on, um, um, the Europeans have actually managed to increase their storage capacity to 100% of what they typically have uh, in prior years. So every single year, they have this amount which they will store ahead of winter. So they managed to do that. Um, how they managed to do that? Number one is, no, I'm saying number one, the, the, primarily they came over to Asia. They bought all the natural gas, LNG, uh, and, and stuff like that from Asia, causing Asian prices to soar um, because they were willing to pay whatever price to get their hands on uh, um, the supply of energy or supply of heating energy. Okay, That straight away tells you that in, uh, in Asia, Asia manufacturers now face higher energy prices. Uh, and therefore will likely pass it on to Asia consumers or at least price it into their goods. Maybe those goods will also go to the US. Okay. And in Europe itself, as we know, energy prices are high. And Europe itself, don't forget, Europe is also a producer of your Mercedes-Benz, your BMWs and a whole host of other stuff which will increase in price. Uh, so at the end of the day, the butterfly effect from 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 Russia um, 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 switching off the energy um, over to 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 Europe is higher electricity prices um, in Europe will cause their goods to increase. The Europeans have come over here and gobbled up every single every single uh, BTU of, of 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 energy here, whatever kilowatt of energy, um, and and brought it back over to Europe, and so therefore prices of goods here will be so. At the end of the day, I think it's going to be very difficult to see goods, prices of goods coming off uh, because of this. Yeah, and, and I guess the ultimate question right here is, will this butterfly effect that you mentioned just uh, prevent the Fed from doing what they're trying to do, which is to bring inflation back down their target goal? Yeah, so, so, so that's it. So, so the, the trick, and that's why I said the tricky part, the Fed will be super duper in the corner if inflation for some reason not say some reason for for reasons for reasons we only will know in the future remain sticky at eight and in fact start to creep up into double digits it just doesn't die because the fed takes 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 away the demand side but the supply side for some reason you know does it cannot come off so it could be that it could be 
and that's really the worst case scenario uh, for, for, for the US. Yeah, and that's, I guess, will be a very scary scenario for the global markets also, right? because uh, whatever the Fed is trying to do right now, it has a lot of impact in the market. But talking about the markets, right? Let's mm-hmm. take the market, okay? So why, because uh, maybe some people in the audience can, can be a bit confused, about Bitcoin being so coupled with uh, tech stocks in the US and being so correlated to whatever the Fed is trying to say. Like, I just want to hold my Bitcoin, you know. Some, some investors just trying to say, oh, I'm new to this environment. I just want to hold my Bitcoin. I don't understand why. <laughs> but when this Federal Reserve say one thing, the market pump. When after that, the guy say the other thing, the market dump. So the question is, why is Bitcoin, why is Bitcoin becoming more and more correlated to stock markets and macro factors? Uh, uh, and when will we see this this decoupling occur? When will we see uh, Bitcoin become the store of value that a lot of maximalists claim it to be? You know, in in the current uh, uh, Twitter space or, or, or Twitter environment right now. What do you think, Mrs. Sunny? My my thesis is basically because more and more players in Bitcoin come from the traditional side. Okay, and I, I um, therefore the correlation now becomes very high. I'll give you one one traditional example. Uh, huh? um, when the when the two thousand and eight crisis hit, uh, we were advising clients to add gold prior to that reading to add gold into their portfolio because gold was considered to be an insurance against uh, um, any any crisis uh, basically. Okay, and that has always been the case. True enough. The crisis hit, our portfolio, both the equity and bond side, were hit. Okay, um, but gold held up. Gold held up so much so that it actually helped the overall portfolio either stay above water, and in some cases even underwater, but not as much as the market because it offset the losses. So, at this particular point, it has done what it is supposed to do. Okay, guess what? Not long after that, gold began to drop like a, like a rock. And we scratched our heads and said, what's going on? And then we realized that because it was part of a portfolio, it has done its job too well that it kept up the rest of the portfolio and people were looking left, right and center and everything continued to disintegrate. The average investor, even the institutional investors were saying, I'm not going to hang around and to see whether gold continues to keep my portfolio afloat. I'm going to liquidate everything now that my losses are minimum or now that I'm making a small gain. I'm going to liquidate my whole portfolio and sit one side and wait, wait till the, the, the dust settles. So I'm going to sell my stocks. I'm going to sell my bonds. I'm going to sell gold. Why net net? I'm still either slightly above or slightly below, but far, far away from the massive losses that either a long bond or a long equity uh, investor would have. So they actually sold gold. So probably go did, did its job too well back then. But what I'm trying to say is when you have investors who are, are thinking from a portfolio perspective, they, I think there are many of them. If I ask people in this group, they are Bitcoin maximalists. They are probably crypto maximalists, i.e. they go into crypto only. But there's a whole bunch of people who are in crypto and stocks. And when you are in crypto and stocks, and you, when you view the markets and when you view macro, you view it across. It applies to crypto and applies to 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 to, to your stocks also. So if you if you view a certain headline and it's bearish in your view, it's bearish for stocks. You're going to say it's bearish for crypto because 
it's very difficult to read one headline and say this is bullish for stocks and bearish for crypto. This is bearish for crypt- stocks and bullish for crypto. You are looking through the same lenses and therefore you will react accordingly. If I'm going to sell my stocks, why the hell am I hanging on to my crypto? I'm going to sell it at the same time. I'm just feeling bearish at this point. So I think that sets in that, that tight correlation between stocks and, and, and cryptos. Uh, for now, because uh, more and more players are holding these two assets in their portfolio. Oh, that is a very, very good answer to, to my question just now, Mister Sunny. So, uh, let me just unpack it, lah. So traditional assets they are being more correlated to uh, crypto right now is because you have the same mentality. Uh, the investors come in from traditional finance, and the last part which you mentioned when everything is dumping. Why not I just dump Bitcoin as well? Because I, I'm here to just cut my losses, right? <laughs> Which is why you see Bitcoin being uh, so correlated to all these uh, speculative assets right now. But the next question is, when will he, when will he see the decouple? Is it possible yeah. that Bitcoin decouples from the stock market and, like what you mentioned just now, moves in its own trajectory, uh, like back in the 08 period where even though the United States entered into a recession, you had gold making all-time highs. When will you see something like that? Yeah. You will see it probably at the... Ex- it, it, has to, the it has to be f- flushed out first, meaning to say, basically, you have to reach... A, in my view, like, you have to reach a point where basically either the asset itself, Bitcoin, suffers the capitulation reaches levels where it's just too attractive, people will come back in. So it's, it's just imagine, um, let's say, I can't, Amazon maybe, I, can't, I also don't even know what Amazon price is. But let's say, for some strange reason, Amazon started to fall heavily. It capitulates ahead of other, other stocks. Okay, So the fact that Amazon has reached such an attractive level, despite the fact others haven't yet, uh, I'm still going to buy it because to me, valuations are great. So if, if, if Bitcoin just tanks to, 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 to below 10,000, I'm pretty sure people are just going to go in and, and, and start accumulating it and say this is a great buy. This so, so you will see a decoupling because it has run its course. It has a, a, a reset. It has washed out all the weak hands. Uh, and at that point, basically, you have very few sellers and now you have buyers and therefore it will just take a different path from everything else. Okay, so that's, that's individually Bitcoin. Um, if you take it in totality, I would say most of these markets, they will start going into their respective uh, directions when everything falls in tandem and we reach that bottom almost simultaneously. So now we're talking about everything coming at one go. Okay, So if Bitcoin doesn't capitulate by itself, it follows everybody else and capitulates one time together with everybody else. That's, that's, that's the time. Um, so it's really this this need to to reach a point where where effectively yeah uh, I know it's hard to believe but there are no more sellers. If you've been in the market in long enough, you will know that they will reach a point uh, where there are no more sellers. <laughs> it's in theory lah, but very few sellers, and you don't need a lot of buyers for 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 an asset to go up. You know, everybody sometimes asks me, um, what do you mean by this? I said, look. Tell me why a price would go up. If I have two buyers, just two, literally two buyers in the market, can the price go up? Of course not. You only have two buyers. How can the price go up? 
I said, can what? As long as you have one seller, I got two buyers, the market prices will go up. So they will always reach a point where you'll find that the sellers have been really wiped out uh, uh, because they, and that's why in any chart, in any course, they'll tell you that market will bottom after a capitulation. Capitulation is basically when every single person just gives up hope and sells, leaving very few people with selling positions or positions which they want to sell. The only people who are holding on are long-term players. Everybody has hope. And you'll look when you look into the so-called uh, transactions, both the bids and offers, you will find that the offers are extremely thin. Very few people are offering because they we've just run out of sellers, and the buyers don't need to be a lot. Just slowly come back in. So once you see that situation where the selling is has thinned out because every Tom Day and Harry is out of the market, out of their position, that's really when when they will take a new direction. Hmm. Yeah, so so we do have to wait for this massive capitulation event to happen, which I think we can both agree we have not seen it yet. No, despite no, the, yeah, yeah, not, yet, no, not at all, <laughs> not at all, right? <laughs> despite such, you see, uh, you, from you, from you saw, we remember we saw Ethereum moving down to about what seven hundred. Yeah, seven eight hundred. Yeah, yeah, that was. I, I, I can't recall the volumes, but if you look in the volumes, I would not be surprised if there was some form of capitulation there. You would find that basically everybody was panicking and selling until the fact that they, at those levels, people are scared on both sides. Huh? People are scared on the sell side. People are also scared to buy on the buy side, okay, on the bid side. But all you have to have is slightly more bids than offers and the thing will just start moving higher already. Because the absence of offers basically allows two persons to just push the market up because hey, only one person offer. I take him this next 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 offer is one dollar away, two dollars away, three dollars, you know. So I know I'm speaking a bit more technical in basis, but that's the fact of the matter. The longer the market falls, the sharper the market falls, everybody bails out and you get very thin offers. Yeah. You get at this point where you just uh, exhaust all the sellers already and there's no longer anybody or very few people left to sell the asset. And right now, uh, even though there are not as many buyers, but buyers far outweigh the sellers and therefore the price begins to just rebound and pump back up, which is totally like what you mentioned just now. When Ethereum broke below its $1,000 support, it went as low as $700, $800. But then after that, it quickly rebounded back up. And right now, it's still staying above the $1,000 support. It's still trading at 1006 currently. Yeah, and, and you and, were asking earlier on what's happening to Bitcoin. How come Bitcoin can just suddenly uh, drop from, where was it, 22600 all the way down, yeah. down to 21000 right? Yeah, no, no well, it, it's, crazy. it's crazy, you know, to, to, yeah, to see. But, but if you just look at Bitcoin where it was early this month when it was raised basically at 18000 um, and then after it started to move higher, people were building longs. So basically, without looking at the volume, you get a feeling that everybody was actually, the market was quite long going into this number. And this number, if had it been good, i.e. had the inflation numbers been low, the market may have pumped up a little bit. But guess what? The market is just so damn long. Everybody's looking to just liquidate and get some profit off the table. Uh, and, and, and if there's no bias, then you get something like this. But this time around, what happened was the numbers were not so encouraging. So you had a panic, everybody going to the exit at the same time. And you have this one straight line down. Yeah, essentially. Not only, not only this market, but, but you can see the stock market is also down, same thing. Yeah. 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 It, it, essentially, it, it, it was a long squeeze. 
and you had a lot of people going long, uh, expecting the inflation data to come out way better or hit at least hit analyst predictions. Then uh, I was even talking about you just now, right? Should I go long in the market or not? <laughs> Fortunately, you asked me to set a stop loss and I didn't place the trade at all, okay? I, didn't, I decided not to take any risks, okay? Because and, and by the way, guys, I don't play any leverage. I just uh, sometimes do a bit of spot trading or whatnot. But yeah, uh, so, okay, a lot of things we talk about tonight and, and very, very interesting topics. Uh, let's just go on to another one, in particular, the Japanese economy. I recently wrote a very short thread about it also. On the one hand, um, we have the Malaysian ringgit. I, I think you're aware about this also, Mr. Sunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, trading at a 24 or 25-year low against the US dollar. Mm-hmm. It's currently what, 4.5. I also see Haikal in the audience. So if, if Haikal, you can come up, I'll be glad to you know invite you and you can come up and uh, talk to us about some central banking secrets. <laughs> but, but yeah, so Malaysian ringgit. It's uh, trading at 24, 25 year low against the US dollar. That we already know. But what a lot of people didn't notice was that right now the yen against the Malaysian ringgit is at a seven year low, you know, which means that we are extremely high against the yen, you know. The, the ringgit is actually strengthening against the yen. So, what's going on here, Mr. Sunny? You know, what, uh, when we look at the Japanese economy and stuff, uh, go ahead. Well, the Japan, the BOJ is adamant at what we call yield curve control. They are keeping their JGB bond yield packed at zero point, I think zero point two five, if I remember correctly. Okay, what this results in is basically what they do is whenever someone wants to sell a bond, they will come in, they will buy, they will ensure that there is unlimited amount of of of, of intervention. Um, to maintain the use at 0.25. So quite clearly, if you have a central bank which is capping their interest rates at ultra-low levels, 0.25, and you have other central banks, including Bank Negara, which is raising rates, although not as aggressive as the Federal Reserve, then that will be reflected in the currency. So rightly so, Ringgit is strengthening against Yen because Ringgit uh, uh, interest rates are moving higher than that of Japanese interest rates, which are stuck uh, at due to the yield control um, um, so-called um, strategy. So to keep it simple, you know, they, the, the, the Japanese government, they refuse to raise interest rates. They have been keeping it uh, low for the previous, I think, maybe uh, 10 years or so. And because of the uh, interest rate differential, you know, you have central banks around the world raising interest rates, but Japanese... But the Japanese government, they're refusing to raise rates and there we have it. Like, that's why the, the yen is so weak. Is that the only reason for this, Mrs. Sunny? Yes, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say only reason, but, but that is a the key, biggest key, key, key reason. Yeah, key reason for that. Now, if we, dig, if we were to dig deeper into the Japanese economy, because after that, we can relate it to probably the Malaysian economy. Is this possible to happen? Or maybe even the US economy. Is, can, this, uh, can this scenario really happen to... Uh, to any other countries or not. Why is Japan refusing to raise interest rates when all the countries around the world are, you know, scrambling and going fast for the interest rate hike right now? You in your in your post, did you actually uh analyze the Japanese growth rates, if I remember correctly? Oh yes, yes. I did I did uh yes. put what the, what was the Japanese growth growth rates? I compared the GDPs. I, I yeah. just put it up in the space. Let me just put it on the space right now. 
But so, what, what, what was your conclusion on on Japanese growth rates? The growth of Japan's GDP has been stagnant for almost three decades. Okay. Yeah. So, so you can imagine, ah, uh, policymakers who see growth stagnate stagnate for three decades will have a resistance to raise rates because they are afraid that they may actually tank growth even more. Okay. Okay. So that that that. That uh kind of conclusion I already understand, but what I'm really confused is that like uh, what is keeping their GDP stagnant right now? You know that that's the part where I, <laughs> okay. I don't really understand. <laughs> so so if if you do have any like uh, knowledge about it, then we can actually talk about it. There for 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 uh, I'm no I'm no Japan expert, but I I do know a little bit lah. Um, the Japanese had. Quite a few policy mistakes when the bubble burst in the nineteen nineties. Their bubble was extremely large. When it burst, basically, um, the banks, corporations ended up with balance sheets which were extremely toxic and extremely bad. Okay, because again, bubble bursting, uh, your liabilities exceed your your assets. Okay. The consumer also was hit because real estate prices was one of the highest in the world, and then of course coming off, consumers also hit because real estate. A lot of them were invested in the real estate. Okay, so what you had was you had an issue with both individual households and 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 corporations with bad balance sheet. Add on to that, banks had bad balance sheet, so banks didn't want to do lending. <laughs> so so you had one part of the economy which was not doing anything. Because they were busy paying off their debts, and you all know that GDP basically is a function of C plus I, ah,、uh, C plus I plus G X minus M consumer or consumption plus investment business investment. If no one wants to consume, businesses don't want to invest. Then basically you have very low GDP. It's left to the government to actually come in and basically make up for it. So for a long time, the Japanese government was pursuing. Very tight fiscal monetary, a、uh, fiscal discipline. They were quite adamant. They did not want to come in to actually uh, 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 increase their debt level. Okay,、um, and that really caused what we call the policy mistake because the economy just wasn't going anywhere. Because if you con, you don't have the C plus I contributing. The only thing that can actually help the economy get into a growth mode was basically G government, and government didn't want to spend. Okay. And it was until later on that the government realized that I actually have to come in, and that's why today Japan has the highest amount of JGBs being issued because they needed to to finance these kind of、uh, spending and such. Okay, but Japan also has its other issues.、Um, uh, one of them being basically it got into this deflationary spiral,、um, and when you know what a deflationary spiral is, which the Federal Reserve and many G7 central banks try to avoid, it is basically. When it comes to a point, no one is spending. Basically, the prices of goods tend to decline. Real estate has bubbled decline, but then goods, normal goods, also tend to decline. So everybody says, if I can get goods cheaper in six months' time, I just hang on to my spending. I just wait first. If I can buy this thing cheaper in one year's time, I don't, I don't spend now. I spend later. And this just permeates into slower and slower economic growth, or even dragging growth because no one wants to spend because things are becoming cheaper as you go along. And this is really what the Federal Reserve was very, very afraid of. Okay, and you on you layer on top of that a situation where the demographics is is tremendously negative, where the aging population is, and then all of these things add together. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you have tara the japanese situation so so it is a a a a combination of policy mistakes combination of demographics a combination of being um, trapped into a liquidity trap and therefore the, uh, a deflationary spiral or in all unfortunately um, uh, the lost decade became lost decades at this point and yeah. that's why they're, they're so psychologically afraid to raise rates because they finally managed to get inflation now up to about i think 3% to the 3% which in a deflationary mindset is a big success i don't want to kill that by raising rates now yeah it's 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 like a it's like a trauma for them to you yeah. know uh raise rates or and and, and stall its growth right now uh, considering what japan right. has been through uh. so so from what you mentioned just now it was kind of like an everything bubble for japan okay in, in a sense that uh, everything grew in a sense then after that the government they failed to uh, they they in in a few policies they had a few very bad policies and the entire economy just spiraled downwards now the biggest question is is this possible to happen to the united states i think i think it is it, it, it might be possible but at the same time the federal reserve will be quick on their heels to take action right is any well the federal reserve in my view um will allow the bubbles to deflate okay whether it's a bond bubble a real estate bubble stock market bubble especially they will allow it to deflate as long as the deflation doesn't come in a abrupt manner it comes in an orderly manner they are more than happy to to accept it i mean you want to bring down inflation you want to do something called a tightening of fiscal condition or not fiscal sorry of financial conditions when you tighten when you want to tighten this broad definition of financial conditions you want to do a few things you want to see interest rates go up you're tightening financial conditions you want to see liquidity go down you're withdrawing money from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening you're tightening conditions you want to see the US dollar go up because when the US dollar goes up your exports or the demand gets lowered so therefore you don't get the, the economy isn't pressured to produce you kill off inflation and you want to see the stock market coming down because the stock market is a wealth creating mechanism you don't want wealth to be created because wealth creates creation of wealth leads to inflation so all these factors are uh, interest rate liquidity us dollar stock market have to move in tandem in order to have that overall financial tightening condition effect uh, so and that's why i think the stock market in the fed's mind should come off must come off but in an orderly manner Um so yes your answer is they will allow it but of course if it's disorderly uh they will come in definitely they will have to come in because their mandate is also to maintain an orderly financial system. Mm okay very interesting. So uh compared to Japan definitely the Federal Reserve will be more I would say quicker on their heels. Uh. Yeah it- the the lesson from Japan is this. The lesson from Japan is after we go through this deflate the def, this the uh, sorry after we go through this bursting of the everything bubble you will see everybody end up in like japan balance sheets will be laden with liabilities um uh, in fact now it's happening already it used to be uh, the american household is solid 
their net wealth is very high. Everybody was confident nothing can shake them. You know what's happening? The decline in housing prices, the decline in equity prices have now cut that net wealth tremendously. And I really now start to realize that net wealth was built on financial assets. And when financial assets get halved, your net wealth halves. And sooner or later, you may even end up in a situation because everybody has just leveraged for every single thing that they've bought. Your liabilities exceed your, 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 your assets. And that's when you are technically bankrupt, so to say. Okay? So when you reach that situation, I think that's when you have the conundrum, like what the Bank of Japan and the Japanese authorities have. My consumers are not consuming too much debt. They are paying whatever salary they get. They're not consuming. They're paying off debt. My businesses are not are not investing in machinery and so on because whatever they earn profit, they're paying off their debt. What do I do? I'm left with the government that needs to come in to produce growth because otherwise growth is not going to come from anywhere else. And then the question is, does the government have that capability? Which means the Japanese government issued JGBs to the extent now, and I think Haikal can, can, can remind me of the numbers, I think it's 250% of GDP. Debt to GDP in Japan is like rocket sky high. The US GD, uh, debt to GDP is 120%, if I'm not wrong again. Um, they will have to ramp that up. And not only the US, but many other countries in the world. Um, the big question is whether uh, the market will penalize these countries for ramping up your debt to GDP uh, as a result. Because yeah. if the market penalizes, then I'm not going to buy your US treasuries at 4%. You are having a debt to GDP of a country which would equate to 6% or 7% or 8%. Oh, then, then it would spiral up into a massive uh, problem. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a scary side, like what you mentioned just now. And uh, considering, you know, the J- J- Japan's crisis and what the Federal Reserve is in. I guess we can only see what's going to happen in the upcoming months and see whether we will ultimately enter into a liquidity crisis like we've always talked about. And the likelihood of it occurring is actually <laughs> siding on the higher side. <laughs> but I-, I think it's been a great night again, Mr. Sunny. <laughs> Time flies, man. It's, it's been one <laughs> hour plus already. Okay. <laughs> I try to fix our sessions to be an hour to an hour 15 minutes. I don't want to make it too yeah, long. Acting yeah. for people. I guess our last topic for the night is uh, the Ethereum merge. Uh, Mr. Sunny, are you familiar with this? I'm kind of familiar. I know what's going to happen, uh, but uh, I haven't been following it as close as other stuff. Like. I do have a bit of thoughts on it, but I don't. I think a lot of people know much more than me. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so after that... Uh, I will I will ask you the question of whether it is priced in and what you're gonna expect. I, in I would think I would think that it's priced in. I it's mean, priced. It's, it's not like CPI where we don't know what to expect. We're making a bet that it could be more or it could be less. Correct. Mm, mm, mm. So when we talk about the Ethereum merge, everything that is supposed to happen is 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 known to us, right? Am I right? Yeah, that's exactly true. So I, yeah. I'll just go through. I'll just so, go through so, stuff. So, so, so my, my view, again, very shortly, and I'm sorry to mm-hmm. interrupt you, uh, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, is what ought to happen is known. That is pricing. POS, uh, increase, increase TPS, whatever the case, those are all, all pricing because we know what it's supposed to deliver. So can there be a surprise to the upside? No. Because it's not supposed to be more than that, right? <laughs> you get what I mean? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. it's 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 POS. It's supposed to be uh, uh, deliver this kind of positive effect, and 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 that's about it. But, but there, could there be a surprise to the downside? The downside. Yeah, yeah. That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at that, my view is people who who position themselves for 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 the merge, um, maybe everything, all the good news has been pricing. Maybe the bad news hasn't been pricing, and we could get a surprise, even a small little surprise on the bad side, and things could turn out to be quite ugly. Again, I'm I'm not I don't have any positions or anything. I'm just telling you how market prices in things. Oh, exactly. Th- those are very good thoughts, lah. And uh, no matter what we say tonight, just some insurers over here. It's uh, just friendly advice, guys. It's not financial advice, lah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, uh, let, let me just go through a bit on the merge uh, because there are quite a few misconceptions uh, spreading around on Twitter right now. So the merge, Ethereum's official update is set to take place at about September 15th, around that day itself. Uh, it will transition Ethereum from a proof-of-work blockchain to a proof-of-stake blockchain. Now, I'm not going to go into details uh, what's the difference between proof-of-work or proof-of-stake. A matter of fact, that it will conserve much more energy. To be exact, 99.5% more energy lah, compared to its uh, previous counterpart. Now, the first myth that people think uh, regarding the merge is that transaction speeds will greatly increase after the update. Uh, that's false. Huh? Currently, blocks in Ethereum are issued once every 13 seconds. So after the merge, right, the block time will only reduce to 12 second intervals. So you won't notice any difference in terms of speed. Uh, second myth. Gas fees will fall to near zero levels. This is also spreading like wildfire on Twitter. They are also false. The merge will not change Ethereum's overall uh, consensus algorithm. It just changes, uh, changes the consensus mechanism, proof of work to proof of stake. So it won't have any impact whatsoever on transaction fees. So future updates like sharding, etc. Now, those will have impact on transaction fees but aren't expected until 2023. So still a long way to go. Uh, the third myth, the update will result in overall network downtime. So don't worry about this. The merge is uh, uh, scheduled to have zero downtime and you do not need to take any action. Users will receive free ETH. Now, this is also somewhat of a myth. When the upgrade is live, right, Ethereum miners who are reluctant to transition to the proof of work, uh, sorry, to the proof of stake chain can continue to mine and stay on the old proof of work mechanism. Now, this will result in a fork. Okay? When the blockchain forks, then some exchanges might give you free ETH tokens based on the proof-of-work blockchain. But you must check whether your current uh, centralized exchange supports the Ethereum merge or not. So uh, if you need more details, just check out the uh, pinned tweet on the space right now, Okay, the most mis- uh, recent pinned tweet. And the last myth is that uh, all the staked ETH will be dumped during the merge itself. Uh, that's also false. ETH will continue to be locked up 6 to 12 months after the update. Even then, uh, validators exiting the network will be limited. So only about 43,200 ETH are allowed to be released per day compared to the current stake supply at 13 million. So you guys shouldn't uh, worry about all this type of stuff. Like, like what Mr. Sunny said, a majority of the upgrade has already been priced in and we should not expect any sudden movements towards the upside. We may be wrong, okay? Something might happen very amazingly or something like that. But towards the downside, then there might be a probability because what if the merge fails? If the merge fails, there is a slight probability of that, then you're going to see uh, Ethereum tank probably like a stone or something. So so can, can we agree with that, Mr. Sunny? 
yeah, I think I think just but it's only for this event. Meaning to say, I think the market's priced in all the good news. Market doesn't expect or hasn't really priced in uh, a potential hiccup. But that doesn't mean that overall um, it's not positive for Eve. Uh, Eve. I think overall the switch is good because, um, of course, there are pros and cons, but overall, you know, um, switching over to POS is, is probably the best thing uh, for it uh, to do. Lah. So if there's a sell-off, who knows? People are more than willing to come in to buy the dips because it's a new structural change, so to say. Lah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting lah, and it's going to occur in less than two days right now. So keep your eyes open, guys, and beware of volatility. I think we've come to the end of our session already. So to conclude our entire session tonight, Mr. Sunny, any last words? Uh, what do we have to be wary of, etc., etc.? No, um, <laughs> well, uh, actually not, not so much. I think I, I, I stand by the um, overall view that uh, we're still in a very um, a precarious uh, environment, um, despite the fact that we have seen um, um, markets move up and especially crypto move up doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we're out of the woods yet. All you have to do is instead of looking at a minute chart or an hourly chart or even a, a half hourly uh, half hourly chart, you look you look at the daily, weekly, monthly chart, you would see that the trends are quite clear at this point. So everybody should be quite, um, I think, uh, uh, aware uh, where the primary trend is and, 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 and kind of like uh, be aware of what the secondary trends are totally different trends yeah so, so so to keep it simple right because Mr. Sunny likes to uh, <laughs> talk a bit talk a bit in the, in the longer perspective just not to be too direct uh, but to be direct on what Mr. Sunny said right we are kind of bearish right now looking at the current market outlook uh, but, but, but don't go tonight and go and sell everything go and short 125x yeah yeah please don't do that uh, because whatever we say tonight is uh, not not financial advice uh, to, to, to the least. Uh, and um, just to conclude our entire session, FOMC meeting upcoming on the 20th to 21st September, the market is now pricing in a probability of 80% for a 75 basis point or 0.75% hike. And there is a 20% probability for a 100 basis point hike. Now, this is pretty crazy. Uh. So all in all, uh, I think we expect the market to probably continue to either skirt downwards or stay sideways because the things are not looking very bullish right now. But uh, watch out for volatility, lah, guys. And remember to set your stop losses if you're trading or whatnot. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed tonight's session. And uh, please give us a follow. And in particular, Mr. Sunny, thank you so much again, Mr. Sunny, for joining us. Thanks for us. having me. Yeah. It's, it's great having you. <laughs> really, a, a lot of thoughts shared tonight uh, and a lot of topics. We yeah, hope it was useful. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe. Yeah, yeah. Okay, be sure to follow Mr. Sunny and follow us, the futurists. All right, I'll see you guys soon, guys. Bye, good night, stay safe.